Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Um, at the beginning of the year, David brought us a three-part message um, called This Is Us, really talking about our spiritual DNA, about who we are, our core values. And if you remember, they were that we were spirit-filled, Bible-believing, and kingdom-advancing. And I don't know about you, but I've been thinking about those things since January, and, and really, for me, they're, they're like a formula, that if we as God's people are full of his Holy Spirit, if we are Bible-believing, so we hold to the truth and don't depart from the truth, then we will be kingdom-advancing. Spirit-filled plus Bible-believing equals kingdom-advancing. And we've been praying about the kingdom-advancing this morning, and the kingdom-advancing is first and foremost in us, in each one of us. And Back in March, um, I looked at an aspect of being filled with the Spirit, being a Spirit-filled people, and we looked at the house of the Spirit. Um, We talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the primary agent at work in the world today. Jesus is now seated at the, the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit that comes and fills us and leads us. And he's the primary agent in God's purposes in extending the kingdom, firstly in us, and then from us throughout the whole of the world. So we looked at the house of the Spirit and how the Spirit of God builds God's house. And he builds the house of God using living stones. And Peter gives us this wonderful description, doesn't he, in his letter, that we are living stones, each one of us, is alive and full of the Spirit, but we're a stone, we're a part of the building of God's house and the fabric of God's house. And in that process of building us, we enjoy and experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at koinonia and what koinonia means. And koinonia has three different types of expression. It can be in communion, that's your communion with God, your um, relationship with Him, and then our communion together but also in community in other words that when we come together if we prefer one another if we lay our lives down for one another if we're always looking to add to one another and to help one another then the community of God flourishes and people looking from the outside in can see that we are God's people because Jesus said by your love for each other you will be known as my disciples and the third element was contribution that actually in that kind of environment where everybody is valued and loved and preferred, that actually we flourish individually and each one of us brings a contribution. And each living stone is completely different and separate to every other living stone. Completely unique. That each one of us is completely different from everybody else. What's remarkable is it's a, it's a scientific fact that there's no one person are like any other on this planet. There's eight billion people or so now on this planet. And we're all different from one another. And the amazing thing about that is, is that God has created so many people to fully express his character and all its fullness. But we are his representative people on this earth to say, through these people, I'm going to show you who I am. And that's what we're here for, folks. That's why the koinonia of the Holy Spirit is so important. So looking at the house of the Spirit, we were looking at how the Spirit places each stone and how each one of us finds our place in the house of God, finds the place that the Spirit wants us to be in, that he's prepared for us and he's preparing us for. That's the house of the Spirit. This time, I would like to look at the work of the Spirit. 
And specifically, I'd like to look at how the Holy Spirit not only places each of us as a stone in God's house, but actually shapes us as a stone. If you can imagine, well, you see the stone. Just go back a slide, would you, Reuben? Thanks. If you see the stone wall that's up there, each one of those stones has been placed individually. And if you've ever seen someone build a stone wall, usually they're chipping away at the stones just to shape them, to take some edges off, to get them to fit perfectly in this lovely mosaic of a wall. And that's the same in God's house. The Holy Spirit builds the house with living stones and he shapes each stone individually to fit it into place. And it's that work of shaping the stone, you can go on a slide now, that I'd like to look at um, this week and next week. This week we're going to talk about uh, the process of sanctification and how the Holy Spirit changes us. Next week, we're going to get into some specifics for each of us individually to think about, about who we are and how God is shaping us. Does that sound good? Fantastic, fantastic. So Galatians 4.19 says, Paul says this, I am in anguish, I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, Paul was expressing a little frustration in the letter to the Galatians. If you've ever read that, you kind of get a slight sense of frustration. And his frustration comes because he knew that the work of the Spirit was that Jesus is formed in each one of us. That Christ is fully formed in us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in this age, is to see that Christ is fully formed in you and fully formed in you. In me, And we're going to look about how that happens and how it's different for each of us. And just the wonderful, beautiful process that the Spirit goes through in order to shape us in the house of God. Just turn with me to Romans 8. Because this process of becoming like Christ, the Bible talks about as maturity and also as sonship. I just want you to turn with me to Romans 8. Sonship. Now, don't get distracted. Sonship is not about being male. Sonship is about growing to maturity, and it's about being an heir. And we're talking about growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ the Son. So think of it that way. Sonship, Christship, Jesusship. We're growing into him. And in this chapter, Paul uses a couple of words. And throughout the New Testament, the words for children and sons and that sort of thing, there are different underlying words for them that are used sometimes by its authors. And Paul often uses two different words. The first one he uses is technon, and the second one is huios. Technon and huios. And technon is an immature child. You could say it's a teenager or even preteen, but someone who is growing up but very immature. A huios is a mature son, a child that's come to full maturity. And in this scripture, we actually find, if you look at verse 14... Paul uses these two different words and it demonstrates for us really helpfully the difference between technon and huios. And he says this in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's huios. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but as you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are technon of God. So he's using two different words there. And the first word he uses, huios in verse 14, he's talking about that mature son, 
He's talking about the child that's come to maturity. And what he's saying is, one of the signs of maturity is that those who are mature children of God are led by the Holy Spirit. That's a characteristic of them. They are spirit-filled and therefore spirit-led. And that is what we're growing up into, that in every single aspect of our lives, we can say, I'm being led by the Spirit in this. I'm being led by the Spirit. Everything that we do day to day, I'm being led by the Spirit in this. But when we first come into the kingdom, we cry like a newborn baby, Abba, Father, but we are technon. In other words, we've come as juveniles. We've come as those that are newly born into the kingdom of God, but need to grow up. And John, in his gospel, in the first chapter, he says this wonderful statement. I I love this. I love John, but of all the statements he makes, I love this. He has, we have the right to become the children of God. Because of his coming, because Jesus the word came and everything that he was doing, we've now been given the right to become children of God. But we've given the right to become technon of God. That we're born into the kingdom. We're not born mature. He doesn't give us maturity on a plate. We're birthed into the kingdom, but he says, now I need you to grow into maturity. Now I'm going to teach you and show you how to grow into the maturity of Jesus, to become like him. And that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians, where he says, I'm in agony because you're going through all these things, but I want to see you grow up into the maturity of Jesus and and to not walk in all these things that you're struggling with. That's why he's frustrated, because he loved them so much. It's God's will for each of us to grow into the stature of Christ. And when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he gives us this wonderful picture of the church. And he talks about the church being this building that's built up, this body that's growing. And in chapter 4, he talks about coming into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that is underpinned by each of us individually growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's how the body altogether grows into the fullness of the stature of Christ. It's not good enough for a few people to grow into that. God says, I want all of you to come into that. I want to see each one of you fully formed into the fullness of Christ. But here's a question I've been thinking about recently. We talk a lot about being coming like Jesus, about looking like him, about people looking at us and seeing Jesus. And that's all fine. But if you think about yourself as an individual, so just... For a moment, just think about you, just you. Think about everything that you are at this moment in time, where you've come from, your background, your history, your culture, your experiences, your education, your family, the family that you've come from, your personality. Think about all that. And to say, if I become more like Jesus, do I become less like me? Does it mean... I just become a clone of Jesus. What happens to all those things that make me me? Because all those things for each of us, that's, that's who we are, isn't it? Only you know who you are because you're the one that's gone through all those experiences. Well, that's not true. There's one other person that knows all those things and that's the Holy Spirit. That's the wonderful thing about the fellowship, that communion we have with him, is that the Spirit comes alongside us and says, I know ever, all of that. Why do you know all of that, Lord? Well, not just because I'm God and I know everything, that's a good start, but actually I was with you in all that. I was alongside you. I heard your thoughts. I felt your feelings. I know who you are. And there's a sense in which we have to entrust ourselves to the Holy Spirit to say, well, you're going to change me, Lord, 
Um, what's left of me? What's going to change? What needs to go? What can stay? And really, that's the nitty-gritty of what we need to get into in looking at how the Holy Spirit shapes each of us as living stones in the house of God. And if we take a step back for a minute and we consider the age that we live in, the world that we're living in right now, here in Stony Stanton, in the heart of the nation, in the UK, I think it's true to say for each of us that we would understand and that we've seen that the prevailing view amongst everyone in society is that if somebody wants to try and change you in any way, they're perhaps not accepting you. Would you say that's true? Now that may be true in lots of different ways. This is in a whole host of things that make us us. But actually, the thought that someone needs to change me is to reject perhaps an aspect of who I am. And some of those things can run really deep. And the world, therefore, says, either accept me as I am, because this is what makes me me, or reject me. And there's this polarisation that's grown, that if we don't accept someone in every aspect, then we must be rejecting them. And that's just a lie of the enemy. It's a lie that the enemy has perpetrated and very cleverly has woven into the social conversation. And in a certain sense, society, all of us included, we kind of bought into that. And we can be afraid of contradicting that. But we need to be those who, with grace and truth, which Jesus brought us, are able to say, that's not true. And let me show you how. And that's why all of this stuff we're going to talk about today and next week, I feel is really important for us. Not only first and foremost so that we can be shaped and changed and come into that huios maturity, but so that we can actually help others as well. Because it's always never about just us. It's always about how can I help others as well? How can I serve others, both in the body and out with, but those that one day may come in? So this is what the Bible talks about as sanctification. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Sanctification. Does anyone know the word sanctification? Quick straw poll. Okay. That's fewer hands than I thought. (laughs) Um, Growing up in the 70s, the word sanctification, 70s and 80s, were perhaps a bit more prevalent. Maybe that was because when I first went to church, it was an evangelical church. We loved the word sanctification and justification and all of the shuns. We really loved them. But sanctification is simply this process of the Holy Spirit shaping the living stone. It's an easy way to think about it. But what I'd like to do is is start by considering what is sanctification. Maybe a long word, but it's really simple. It simply means to set apart, to separate. That's all it means, to sanctify. Often we see it linked to holiness because we talk about God as holy and we talked about We talk about sanctified things. The Bible will talk about sanctified things. And holiness in terms of God is, it's not just that um, God is pure and and, and there's nothing impure about him, but God is also separate as well. And that's part of his holiness, his separateness, if you like. And the Apostle John talks in his letters about um, God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. There's no mixture of things in there. He's light, he's pure light, and he's separate in in that sense. The wonderful thing is, is that all of creation can come into that light. (laughs) 
Although God is separate in that sense, he's separate from sin, his plan and purpose is that all of his creation would come into that light and enjoy uh, his light. We mustn't confuse sanctification with justification. Justification is about our standing before God. So probably many of you have heard this phrase before. Justification is just if I'd never sinned. Justified. I'm justified. It's just if I'd never sinned. It's about coming to a place where actually our legal status in the courtroom of God and in the judgment of God is innocent. Completely innocent because of what Jesus has done. And we've sang about that this morning. Justification is about the work of Christ on the cross, that complete and finished work that when he was raised from the dead, he was um, validated by the Father, everything that he'd done, and then raised and glorified and is at the right hand of the Father. And that justification, that finished work is ours. That's our standing before God. But that's not sanctification. That just gets us into technon territory. We're now babes in Christ. But we now need to move on to huios. We need to move on to that maturity. In Genesis 2-3, you just put that one up. This is just sort of demonstrates that principle. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And it's kind of just expressing that principle that actually God separated the Sabbath, made it holy because he said that's the day of rest. And we see that principle of God separating. In fact, in Genesis 1, you see a lot of separating. He separates a lot of things from other things and declares what's good. And that's part of God's sanctification and judgment work. Colossians 1 verse 13 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what happens with justification, what happens when we got saved, is that God picks us up from the kingdom of darkness, says, I'm taking you out of this kingdom, and I'm putting you in my kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we have a wonderful foreshadow of this in the Old Testament. Why do you think so many pages are devoted in the Bible to telling us about the troubles of Israel? It's not just because God wanted to be a bit of a downer on them, or he wanted to show them up, but he wanted to show us and give us a foreshadow of what salvation would mean. It would mean picking us up out of Egypt, taking us into the promised land, but taking us from the kingdom of darkness and getting the Israelites out of Egypt. If I can put it this way, it seemed to be the easy bit. That was actually quite easy in comparison with what was going to come next. And then when the... Israelites went through the dry seabed, the Red Sea, and the waters came and cut off the Egyptians. We know that was a picture, a foreshadow of our baptism. That actually when we become in Christ and we go under the water of baptism, that enemy, that past, the power of it is cut off in our lives. But we know, don't we, because we've read the stories, we know what happens next. You think, yay, we're home free. How long? It's about two weeks maybe to get to the promised land from here. I mean, that's just a quick holiday across the desert, isn't it? You could turn that into a little fun trip for the kids. We'll be in the promised land for time, in time for tea and cakes. But we know that didn't happen because even though God got the Israelites out of Egypt, the next thing was to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And we find time and time again 
that the Israelites were looking back and there were aspects of um, their character as a nation, of their thinking, of their way of acting and feeling that were really part of the legacy of Egypt that had seeped its way into them. And God had to remove that from them. And that is a wonderful picture of the process of sanctification. Let's look at Romans 8.29. Now this is Paul talking about us. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image, that means the likeness, of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Romans 6.19 says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, that is, your bodies, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the Bible is now talking about things that we need to do as those technon in order to mature into huios, into those mature children, to go from the young and the immature into the mature. And part of the significance of that, by the way, when Paul writes to the Galatians again, um, he's dealing with an issue there where the, the, the church had been bewitched, the church had been deceived into believing that they had to put themselves under the yoke of the law again in order then to come into the freedom of the grace of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, someone's pulled the wool over your eyes and they've led you back into slavery. And then Paul starts talking about the slavery of sin and actually the slavery of the law and the fact that the law was only given to lead people to Christ. It was only given to say, you need Christ to bring us to the kingdom of God. But in there, he talks about technon and huios again. And he says, the thing about a technon is, they're a young child, and even though they're a member of the family, they can't do anything. They don't own anything. Everything is owned and controlled for them. In fact, he says, they're no different to slaves. In the household at the time, they will have had sons and daughters born in the family, and they would have had slaves that were part of a wider household. And he said, these technon are no different, because they can't come into their inheritance. Only Huios will grow up and then they come into the inheritance of the family. And that's the whole process. So in Ephesians um, uh, 4 and in Colossians 3, we've got these great chapters telling us about putting off what is of Egypt and putting on what is of the kingdom of God, that kingdom that we've come into. And in Colossians 3.10, Paul says this, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I'm going to read that again because it's not an easy statement to understand. Well, I don't think, anyway. Um, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And for me, there's a lot in there which the Holy Spirit has to reveal to us yet. What does that really mean for me? Every day, what does it mean? I know something of what it means is that the image of God that will be reflected through me is being renewed and restored every day and becoming clearer and clearer if I'm progressing from technon to huios, if I'm maturing in the things of God. So a definition at this stage we can give to sanctification is it's the carrying on to perfection. The work began in regeneration. So what's begun in our coming into the kingdom, our regeneration, 
it's carried on to perfection. And when the Bible talks about perfection, it's talking about maturity. It's not on about someone that doesn't make a mistake, but someone that's coming into maturity. So it's the carrying on of our salvation, our coming into the kingdom. And we can say that sanctification is also a special work of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes to the church, he addresses them and he says about their calling, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So it's really clear that the work of the Spirit is our sanctification. That's what he's here for, to shape us and to help us to become like Christ. But I think it's really important for us to understand the mechanics of sanctification. I'm just going to read you another scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5 Verse 23 to 24 says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I do really like that last statement, by the way. (laughs) In all these things, putting off, putting on, and all the when we think about the enormity of what needs to happen in us, it can be very overwhelming. Either we walk away from it and try and bury our head in the sand, or we kind of face up to it and think, this just seems enormous. How can the fullness of the statue of Christ be seen in me? But the great news is, is that we have this wonderful partner, the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't worry. He says, all I need is your willingness, and I'm going to do it in you. Don't worry. This is not too big a task. For us together. But when Paul writes this letter, he's talking about sanctification being something that's holistic. It's not just about my spirit or my soul or my body. It's all of me. It's all of you that needs to be sanctified. And I think over the years, in different conversations I've had with believers, sometimes we get a little bit confused when we're talking about putting off the old, putting on the new. You know, when we read the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. Well, when you get up every day, there seems to be evidence, in my life anyway, that the old is very much still around. (laughs) And the old very much still is a bit of a problem for me. So now we have to say, well, what is Paul talking about? When he said the old is gone, what old? What are you saying, Paul? What does that mean for me? What does it mean practically for me every day? What does it mean in the challenges I'm facing? What does it mean in the problems that I can't seem to shift? Maybe those persistent things that you would be happy if they were just gone from your life. Is it just that I'm not believing this scripture enough and it's a matter of not enough faith? I don't believe so. Or is it that actually we are tripartite? In other words, we are spirit, soul and body. And Paul uses these three words. Spirit is pneuma. And it's that element of ourselves that's unseen. Our spirit, you know, God says in um, Genesis he created Adam and then he breathed his life into Adam. And we, we are a spirit. It can't be measured scientifically. It can't be seen. It can't be observed with the physical senses. Your spirit is unseen. It's spiritual. And it's part of the spiritual realm that exists outside of time and space. Think of time and space as a bubble that's contained. Everything physical, including time, start to finish. God created that, but what existed before? 
the spiritual realms, well before time and space were created. And our spirits are spiritual. They're part of that. But our, our soul, the next word he uses is suke, and it means soul. And it, it is measurable. It is something that's physical. And it represents everything about us, our personality, our minds, the way we think. It's a sum total of our experiences and our culture and maybe even our race and our background. And all those things go to shape and form our soul, our suke. And then we have body. And it just literally means our physical body, our soma, which is a physical body. When we got saved, something essential happened, which is that God reversed the curse of sin in terms of the order of preeminence. I'd use a different word because this is not very accessible. God flipped the order upside down because what had happened in the garden is that Adam and Eve had been created as beings with spirit and soul and body, but the spirit was supposed to be in the driving seat. Our spirits communicate with God who is spiritual. So our spirits are in the driving seat. If you can imagine a car, the spirit's the one in the front driving the car. You know that person that always has to drive? You got one of those in your family? Yeah, that's your spirit. It wants to drive and God designed your spirit to be in the driving seat. Your soul and your body very much need to be in the passenger and the back seat, respectively. What happened when sin came into the world is that there was a cutting off of that spiritual life. And although we are still spirits, and although we're spiritual, and we have a sense of spiritual things, we couldn't connect with God anymore. And what's more, that meant that the suke and the somos, in other words, our soul, our personality and our bodies, they came into the front and said, you know what, we're going to drive from now on. And at the first few pages of Genesis demonstrate really well for us what happens when those two get in the front driving seat. They are not qualified to drive. And the whole of human history is a testimony to people that have not passed their test being out to drive. It's a car crash. It's a disaster. And, you know, as history's gone on, if you're a student of history, you will know that we've not always been savages. Maybe in the early days we were savages and, and maybe the physical appetites were driving everything, the need to hunt and kill and steal and to conquer people. But then as civilization came along, humanity then said, well, actually, there's a better way. Maybe it shouldn't be the physical appetites in charge. Maybe we need to be those that rise above that and we think. We become enlightened. Education is the key. If we can only educate everybody, we're going to have societies where there is tolerance. We're going to have societies where we build something. And to a certain extent, that is true in as much as when the intellect and learning and education are elevated in any country around the world, you will see a progression in that country. But let's not be deceived into thinking that that sorts out the problem. Because still one of those two is in the driving seat. Now, whether it's all about the physical appetites or whether it's about the mind, and if you think about something like mindfulness and meditation techniques, they're all designed to try and say, if I can just control everything, if I can control my mind, then my body will follow. Well, you know what? That's true. But that's not the whole equation. Because there's sin at work. And sin is in here. It's in my personality. What happens when we get saved is that our spirits are reborn. 2 Corinthians 5.17 
the new creation is now my spirit's now reborn and now my spirit needs to be in the driving seat. The challenge and the difficulty for us is actually making that happen day to day. Because guess what? Now they've had a little turn with the steering wheel, the body and the mind don't want to give up control of the car anymore. (laughs) They want to be in the driving seat. The Spirit of God helps our spirit, you, to say, no, you're not in charge anymore, and that's not God's will for me. This body cannot drive all my decisions. This mind cannot be trusted to make all my decisions. But this spirit is full of the Holy Spirit. This is the the place. This is the decision-making center of my life. This is the driver. This is the qualified driver. And as we mature, maybe we take one of those special qualifications where advanced driving test. But the spirit has to be in control. The problem with every other philosophy is it stops at the wrong level. It doesn't deal with the spiritual problem. And that's why it's really important. So let's go to Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. You'll be familiar with these verses. And Paul talks again about the somos, the body, and the suke, the mind. How do we bring these two into submission? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We need to bring our bodies into submission. And that's part and parcel of what fasting is, to help us to bring our bodies into submission. You're not in the driving seat. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, your suke, your soul, your thinking. Let it be renewed that by testing you may discern, we discern by the Spirit, by the way, our Spirit's within us, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's talking there about training this to think differently and training this to feel differently. And it takes time. It's like trying to turn around one of those big ocean liners, you know, where it takes like several miles for it to make a turn because it's such a big vessel. That's what we're like. It takes a long time to change the direction of our thinking. Some of it is muscle memory. You ever heard of that phrase, muscle memory, where you might do something without thinking about it because your body has just become accustomed to doing that. That's what our bodies and our minds are like, is there's some things that have just become habit for us. It doesn't mean that we're not in Christ. It just means we've got to retrain ourselves to not do those things. And that is the putting off that Paul has been talking about. Putting off. In this world, there is now a prevailing view that we were saying just a few minutes ago, which has really persisted for the last couple of hundred years, which is that our identity of who we are is defined by our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. And very importantly, we are the ones who define it. No one else can tell me What is my true identity? I have to discover that for myself. And then what I define in here, or in here, then my external reality, including everybody else I know, has to accept and recognise that. That is a completely contrary view to the truth of God, which is each of you I made and designed and created, and more than you, I know what I've made you to be. 
I know who I've created you to be. And more than that, I also know what you would look like without the entanglement of sin in your lives and in your personality. Sometimes I feel that um, when we get saved, it's like we were sort of in an oil slick. I don't know if you've ever seen those really distressing images of um, usually seabirds that are, and animals that are rescued from an oil slick in the ocean. And, and, and the people that go out to rescue them, they bring them into somewhere that's safe and they have to wash them and clean them and it takes a long time because that oil just gets in and it's sticky and it's residue and it just won't go away and it's in every little crook and cranny. And sometimes I feel that's what sin has done to us. It's got in every crook and cranny. And actually the work of the Holy Spirit is to say, I'm going to separate that stuff from you. I know what you should look like. I know how beautiful I made you to be. But I know what sin has done to this aspect of who you are and that aspect of who you are. You see, what Jesus did was to deliver us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. But what the Holy Spirit has come to do is to deliver us from the pollution of sin. He's come to rescue us and to get that horrible sticky oil. It's not the oil of the Spirit. It's not that wonderful, pure, amber, golden you know, Italian olive oil. It's none of that stuff. It's dirty and it's greasy and it's horrible. And the Holy Spirit has come to help us and to take it away from us. What I'd like to do is to leave you just with um, a few questions. Because next time, uh, today we've talked about shaping the stone and, and what the Spirit is here to do, the work of the Spirit in shaping the stone. But actually, next time, next week, I'd like to talk about revealing the glory of who we are and talk about what that means for each of us individually and what would be helpful just as a foundation for that would be for each of you if you're here next week just to be thinking ahead of that about who you are and just to think about these questions if God if God wants to make me more like Jesus which means that maybe parts of my personality parts of this this suke this mind need to go which parts need to go in other words how deep does the spirit need to go are there aspects of the way I've always thought maybe things I inherited from my parents maybe things I just took from my family experience that are actually like that oil they're kind of coated all through me that need to go are there things that I know for some time maybe because my conscience tells me, do you know what? There's things that aren't right here in the way I think. Are there aspects that are just me, that I feel are just my personality type, that perhaps need to change? And how do they need to change? And am I willing for the Holy Spirit to do that in me? Will I still have independent thoughts? I know it sounds like a funny question, but you know, if I'm led by the Spirit of God and he tells me what to do and I become like Jesus, do I think for myself anymore? It's a good question. Will I, when, when I become more like Jesus, do I still have independent thoughts? And I don't mean independent as in, you know, rebellious independence. I mean, I just came up with that myself. I, independently thinking about something. And here's another question. How will I be different from everybody else in the house of God? What makes me different from them? 
And how is God going to use my difference to express something unique about who he is? These things are wonderful because God has chosen to reveal himself in this way. His manifold wisdom, his glory is to be revealed through us. And it's so fantastic, it's almost unbelievable. But it's true. That's what God is going to do. And next week, I just want to get into some of these things about our background, our culture, our personality traits, our history, our families. Talk about some of these things. And before we get there, Lord, I just want to ask you that you would help us to go deeper, Spirit of God, that this week, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us individually, Lord, and, and just start to bring some things up. Maybe things that we haven't thought about or not thought about for some time, Lord. That we would just be soft-hearted towards you, Lord. And that we would lay everything down. Lord, as Cindy prayed earlier, Lord, that we would embrace the fact that there is nothing too precious to give up and sacrifice in return for that which you have given to us, which is your precious son, Jesus. In his mighty name, we say amen. 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 Thank you, folks. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.